unfiltered with Matt Farnsworth. What's up, everybody? I'm here with Brad McLeod, and he is the creator of Sober Motivation, which has been an amazing asset to so many people in the sober community out there. Now, he's busy talking to everybody about their stories, sharing their stories, sharing motivation, but I haven't necessarily heard your story, Brad. So I really wanted to have you on my podcast to talk to you about all these wonderful things that you are doing and you have created because you're, you're such an inspiration to so many people. So <clears throat> thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, of course, dude. Thank you so much for, for having me, for thinking of me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, you're always out there. You're reaching out to so many people. You're doing so many great things. You've got so many great sobriety products happening in, in the works and, and this wonderful podcast that you do and you work so hard on. I just wanted to touch base with you and figure out like, okay, we've heard thousands of people's stories that you've told us, but like, who are you, man? Like, how did this whole thing start? Like, uh, who's Brad and, and, and where's Brad from? And how did Brad, you know, start, start uh, getting into the world of unfortunately drinking, predisposition to alcoholism, drug addiction? Uh, what was your story like 30,000 foot level? Uh, let's figure out who you are and then let's dive in deep. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And the, the whole thing that the sober motivation came about is because I started six years ago sharing my story and then I hit this wall of like, oh my goodness, I'm tired of telling this same story over and over. And that's where I had this like maybe a light bulb moment of let's share other people's stories and let's celebrate other people who otherwise might not uh, have that voice or have that platform or opportunity to do so. And that's sort of when the sober motivation thing was born. And my wife was the first follower of sober motivation. I feel like people see it now, see things now and they're like, oh my goodness. I mean, this is incredible. But like for, for anybody who's starting out anything, like you, you really have no idea where it's going to go. And there's nobody really supporting you in the beginning, but maybe your, your, your loved ones or a couple of friends. So it, it's been incredible to be a part of it and to, to see things grow and to see people make progress. <clears throat> But a little bit about me, man. I was born in a town called Kitchener, Ontario. My mom was 16 when she had twins. Um, so, I mean, that posed, that posed some challenges, obviously, right at the gate, right? High school and stuff. I personally couldn't imagine that. I have three kids now, and then you know, I'm much older than 16, and I'm still working my way through it uh, and learning every single day. So that thing that was tough, my grandparents did a lot to raise us, my brother and I. When we were younger, my dad was young too. So, I mean, probably did the best he could. I don't really have too, too many memories of, you know, those really early, like one to five years or one to four anyway. But uh, my mom went back to school and then <clears throat> after some time, she, she wanted to be a nurse, right? So they were looking for a lot of nurses in the U.S. So that's when we made the move. My mom packed us up when we were like six and we moved down to Texas, man, all the way from um, people down there think that you live in igloos in Canada. So it was a, di it was a different culture in not massively different, but it was different. There was a different vibe. There's, there's, there's a different culture there. So it was a little bit different for me fitting in right. New school, new country. Dude, um, Texas is, it's its own country, man. It's not <laughs> like the, you, you know how people are, everything's bigger in Texas, Texans. It's their, it's their universe. Yeah. I, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I kind of was into that. I mean, I didn't understand all of that at the time, right? Like I didn't yeah. really get everything coming together. But yeah, when I look back, it was a little bit different going to school and 
trying to fit in as being the new kid. I mean, that age too, when you hit about six, seven years old, a lot of kids too have already done their kindergarten, maybe their neighborhoods. They know people already. So you're kind of coming into to a spot. And I didn't have a lot of confidence looking back in myself and you know my abilities. I never did well in school. I was diagnosed with ADHD early on. I had been seeing doctors and, and psychiatrists and stuff for behavioral problems. You know, I think that move when I look back and we, we talk a lot about trauma in the space of addiction, I don't think it obviously wasn't intentional from anybody, but I think there was trauma experienced where I was removed from that environment where it was comfortable. Um, my grandparents had, you know, a bigger house. We had our own bedrooms. Then my brother moved, my brother and my mom and I, we move into this uh, two-bedroom apartment. We have bunk beds. We're sharing a, a room. My mom's working. We're, you know, there was probably a lot of babysitters involved um, trying to look after us. My mom's working nights. You know, I mean, when you get into that type of field, too, it's a 24-7 operation, right? So when you first start out, you're going to work the shifts that people don't want to. That's overnight. So that's what she was doing. And... um things were good. Things were good. But I, I think that that played definitely played a role in sort of my feeling of not being seen and my feelings, you know, further down the road of just not feeling comfortable in my own skin. I started to feel some anxiety too, a little bit of the unknown um, mm -hmm. when I reflect back. So that's a little bit of the, the beginning years to set a foundation for all of this. Yeah, man. That's so what about the dad? Was your dad around? No, he never moved down there. So he, mm -hmm. he stayed up here in Canada the whole, the whole time. So, and of course that has an impact as well, you know, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you at know. the time I didn't, he'd never lived with us or anything when we were ever, when we were growing up. Um, mm -hmm. but I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, not, not having that, you know, that extra person. Plus, I mean, it put, I, it probably put a lot more on, on mama, right. For, for mama to hold down the fort and, um, provide, you know, with, without, my grandparents being there to really help out with it. Yeah. I mean, it, so many, yeah, times. there's so much, so much to, to just unpack there in terms of the attention that kids require and, and not to mention the way they feel like they, they can sense our stress and that actually stresses the children out. There was a study recently, and I, I can't recall the study. I wish I could. It was I was trying to pull it up in my mind, but um, the, the children they directly osmosis whatever you're feeling, you know, they're going to go through as well. So I can imagine that definitely did set a foundation for you to like be like, dude, my mom is like working nights. I'm sure she wasn't like during the day. How do you work nights and then take care of kids the next day? Yeah. That's, that's tough, dude. Um, but yeah, so, so that kind of set the foundation. So you're in Texas. We're at in Texas. Oh, we lived in Waco actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So total culture shock from Ontario to Waco. It's a different vibe, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what, what did you start getting into? So you're, you're in, um, so you're in like what elementary school there, middle school, where does, yeah. where do things like, were you, were you playing sports? How did things work for you? Friendships? Yeah. Um, how did this, how did, how did you develop in Texas? Uh, did you finally settle down, make some friends and start, you know, having a good time? Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. Well, I mean, we didn't, I didn't go to middle school and stuff. Um, we actually moved to North Carolina. My mom met my stepdad, my stepdad. And then they, they um, got together and they wanted to, 
you know, a four season place. Right. So that's when we ended up moving to apex, North Carolina, the peak of good living. That's what it's, uh, <laughs> what the, the tagline is there. But yeah, I mean, I always struggled meeting people and connecting with people with, uh, mm -hmm. with my peers. I struggled with that, you know, throughout my entire life. Um, connecting with other people, building relationships. I didn't really know how to communicate with people or be vulnerable, even though like, it's not a massive part of, you know, when you're younger, 10 years old to be vulnerable with people, but I never really let people in or let people get too close. And, and I think it was all tied back to that fear of abandonment, right? If you open yourself up, then, you know, you, you risk the, the, you risk people walking out. Right. And I already kind of experienced that before. And like I said, it wasn't anything intentional. You know, my mom wanted to create a good life for us and was kind of going after what, um, what that would look like. But that was sort of the way I way I carried it around, you know. So I had a really hard time connecting with people. I always I always had one good friend, but beyond that, not really, you know. And it was always a it was always a mixed match, you know, with me and whoever that good friend was. Like we just looked completely different in, in everything, and you know, people would be like, "I wonder, like, how did this relationship get formed here?" You know, it was just it was just the opposite side of the spectrum every time. But I always had that one good. That one good friend, whether it be at the apartment complex or in school, there was always one person and they would, you know, come and go, but always had that one person, you know, then I had my brother too, like earlier on in life, we, we had a pretty good relationship. I mean, we always had, but as you get into like your teenage years, right? Like you kind of drift away a little bit, um, with your, with your siblings. I did anyway, um, with yeah. him, but yeah, so we moved to North Carolina this was like a fresh start, right? They bought their first house. We had sort of the neighborhood experience where now you could meet more people. Before we lived in an apartment complex, it was a little bit more difficult to connect and, and meet everybody there. But now we live in the neighborhood and you could, you know, there's people on the street and stuff. So I was able to build more relationships there. And, you know, I had a, a couple more good buddies and we went to this school we could walk to. We didn't have to take the bus. So that, that was really cool because I used to hate going on the, you know, the bus and stuff and get picked on and, everything Dude. like that right it was it was terrible right the bus was terrible man i went to different schools like you I, I went to like 13 different schools by the time i had graduated from high school so it was non-stop and there was a kid scotty weber scotty weber if you're out there you are probably in prison um he put a knife he would bring a but like a literally a butcher knife on the bus and he would put it through the seat so you'd be sitting there and there would be a knife that would, I mean, come through the seat, man. Like oh, this kid was absolutely out of his mind. I don't know whatever happened to him, but he brought a knife one day. He did that on the bus. It was torture, bro. <laughs> the bus was torture. So I, God. I vibe with you there. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. Yeah. I, it wasn't that necessarily that extreme, but yeah, that's, that's next level. Yeah. That's like, that was, I don't know what was wrong with that guy, but that was my bus experience. And after that, I told my mom, like, I can't do it. I can't do the bus thing, but yeah. a lot of, it is very, when we're young like that, it is interesting the way that these relationships and how we try to integrate and how we be, try to become a part of this homogenous like area of people. And we try to integrate ourselves and it's so hard to figure out how to integrate, you know, with that community. And boy, when, when alcohol comes in, it becomes that social lubricant, doesn't it? That just allows you to sort of, integrate into the into this like all of the inhibition or the anxiety that i had when i first started drinking i don't know if this was the same way for you the inhibit the inhibitions they just kind of 
they melted away and I felt like, well, I'm able to just be a part of this group now or go to a party and I wouldn't feel the nerves. I had a lot of anxiety just mm -hmm. entering a, a party or, you know, being in social groups. Was it that way for you? Yeah. I mean, of course, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just takes it away, right? Everything that you're, you're worried about. I mean, I wouldn't say I had anxiety entering to a party because if I was going to a party, I was already into it, you know, far, far before yeah. that. But I mean, my, uh -huh. it was interesting though, because, um, like when I tell this story, I went to rehab for 12 months when I was in high school and this was, I, I didn't even get into substances in, in high school. I didn't get into smoking weed or, or, or drinking or anything. Um, I had a lot, I had a ton of behavioral issues though. I was constantly being suspended ever since middle school. I was getting in trouble. Like I had the ADHD. So that's kind of was like, I was just hyperactive. I had absolutely zero interest in anything that they were teaching in school. I never did homework once in my life and I might've passed one test my entire life. And I never did well in school. And that's what everybody wanted you to do. They're like, do well in school. You know, you, you do well and, and you can, um, you can have this great life afterwards if you can. I could never get it together. I could care. I never read a book. I never did any of that stuff. But because of that, I constantly got this message from the outside world that like I wasn't good enough, that I just wasn't falling, falling in line with what everybody else was doing. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. All my peers would celebrate their good grades or whatever it is. You get awards for this and that. And I would just kind of be, you know, in the back. Right. And I never got attention or noticed because of doing well, like other people did. So what I did is I just acted bad and I got attention, not in a good way, but I got noticed and, you know, it escalated, right? Because it's just like anything else. You build a tolerance to these negative behaviors. So then you have to do more extreme stuff and people are expecting more extreme stuff to give you the same attention. And when I reflect back, I mean, it took me years to figure this to figure this stuff out. I had no idea at the time what the heck was going on. I just was getting disciplinary here and there. And then when I was 16 in high school, if it's cool to jump to uh, to the 16. Yeah, man, go for it. School, Let's go. Yeah, we uh, I was trying to fit in with these guys. They were good guys, right? Like on our own. We were we were good. We were good folks. But when we got together with we these bad ideas and we, we were stealing stuff and um, we got busted. At a, at, when I was 16, I got busted. Um, the whole story, I mean, when you look back, it's kind of funny. Um, but we got busted. The cops came to the house. They were like, yeah, we know you guys were stealing this stuff. Um, we stole a baseball bat from Dick's Sporting Goods. We were stealing other stuff too, but we stole this baseball bat from Dick's Sporting Goods. I'll never forget this day. My buddy, he like took the security tag off. We thought we were so slick. And, and, and um, he put it like down his pants. So he was like wobbling because you can't bend your knee at that point so he's like wobbling out of the store my buddy has his sunroof open like we think we put plan this thing out perfect we wait a couple of days i think at the time we had put it on ebay and then we but we we're like oh it's not going to sell on ebay we can't go through all that stuff so we brought it to play it against sports well obviously strange when a couple of teenagers coming to play it against sports with like a 700 dollars baseball bat so we gave them the ID, they paid us money, and then like they called the police after, right? So Tom showed my parents' house. We had take we had stolen some other golf clubs, but like the the clubs that we said were no good, we threw behind my parents' fence into the woods. So when the cops came, like they I think they already talked to one of my other buddies, so they knew exactly what they were looking for. So we were on the hook for a couple different things. Um so I got arrested. And in North Carolina at the time, at 16, you're an adult. So I got charged with these things. They took me, they took me down to like the real jail, um, which I went back to a couple more times. 
and they book you in. And, um, and I, I thought for sure, and I always had a ton of behavioral stuff. Like my life was just in ruins or wreck. School was terrible. Relationship with my parents was terrible. Um, I was just really running around doing whatever the heck I wanted to do. I mean, I was headed to, you know, for addiction, you know, long before, you know, you hear some people talk about this, like there were red flags long before we ever picked up that we were looking for, you know, an escape from ourselves in, in different behaviors. So I, I end up in this cell and um, there's this guy in there and he's, he's sobbing, crying, and he looks like a little bit older than me. And it's like a 10 by 10 uh, little room there. It's got the plexiglass, like halfway concrete block, and then a plexiglass the rest of the way up. And he's on the phone, and like the phone only goes for a few minutes, and then he, he has to call someone else, and he's crying. And I'm just like, man, this is like, dude, what did I get myself into? And and then I asked the guy naively, right, because it's so uncomfortable. I'm like, hey, like how is every well, – he was when he was done the phone, how's everything going? And, you know, what the heck, it, what brings you here or something? You know, I asked something weird, right? I didn't know what else to do. And he said he was being being charged with murder of a girlfriend, and he was taking the train system from New York City down to Florida, and this is where they got him, was in Raleigh. And um, I'm thinking, man, like, dude, okay, I've mm-hmm. seen this stuff in movies, but I never thought I would be sitting in a room 10 by 10 with somebody in this situation. Now, I don't know if the guy did it or not or any of, this, any of the rest of the story, but I was thinking 16 years old, I've been acting, you know, acting up, trying to fit in and doing all this stuff. And here I find myself and I'm like, man, I'm going to change my ways. You know, I started having those thoughts of like, I've got to change my ways because the consequences are not what I expected. Like, I did not expect that to be my situation. My parents obviously bailed me out. I got a lawyer. I got uh, I was on probation after that. And I had this really hard nosed probation officer, man. I wish I could remember her name. I can't remember her name, but she was on me, I mean, for everything. You couldn't skip school. And it's much different than the system up here in Canada, right? Probation officers don't carry sidearms or wear jackets. They're, they're, you know, if you saw a probation officer, it would just look like a bank clerk or, you know, regular regular person there. Yeah. They got the jacket on. The, they, she mm-hmm. would come to the school, wait outside the classroom and make sure I went to school. And this was hard for me because I was dealing with depression and anxiety at the time. I was part of, I was involved with this codependent relationship that was just a dumpster fire of a relationship. And um, I couldn't sit still in class. I couldn't sit still in school. Yeah. So I would skip class. And uh, she was right. Oh, man. I mean, she would take, uh, we'd have to go back to court. My parents would have to get this lawyer back involved. Mm-hmm. She'd want me to go to jail for weekends. You know, I'd have to do mm-hmm. urine tests. And I think that's actually a reason that I didn't get into it too is because I used to have to do samples. You know, you have somebody watching you, right? It's real. It's, it was really awkward, honestly, you know, 16 years old, having somebody like watch you use the washroom. It is Dude, what it is. But I've been there. I've done it. It's awful, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's so, it's so degrading. And, and to this day, I will like go into a stall now. Yeah, I just won't. It, I won't do it, man. I'm like, don't want anybody next to me after that. It's just really, it, it leaves a scar. Yeah, it's just yeah. really strange. And like, I mean, obviously, I take full accountability for the decisions and choices I made, but it was a really, it was a strange thing. And I remember one time I couldn't go. Like, just you just it's stage fright, man. I mean, I drank like an entire Polar Pop, thirty two yeah. ounce drink, and I was just full to the brim, and I just couldn't go. And she. Mm-hmm made me sign this paper basically saying it was a dirty test and I'd never even done drugs or anything. And that's another time when we had to go back to court. 
Um, and I had to be taking my medication and I had to be doing stuff. And she wanted me to get a job and all this stuff. I got my first job too. When I was 16, I got this job at Bojangles, but I was, mm -hmm. I lacked the confidence and I had so much anxiety. The manager was like, I'm going to give you this job and a chance, even with my record. Right. Cause you have to, there in the U S you've got to check all these boxes, right? Like, oh, did they charge you know. with a felony? No, that was only a misdemeanor. Okay, good. Yeah. But, but, um, Actually, it might have been a felony and reduced to misdemeanor. I, I can't yeah. remember. The um, initial what, charge might have been. Yeah. yeah, the initial charge might have been, but then reduced down to a felony. But um, I never even showed up for this job, man. I never even showed up for the first day. And, like, Buddy was calling me, and I just dodged him um, yeah. from doing it. And, that, and then she was on me because she was like, well, you got this job. And, you know, you know so it was just it – was, it, it, it was probably what kept me from getting into stuff, honestly. Like, it was a good thing, but it was also – a huge stress, you know, an, an adult probation officer. When I was 16, I understand she wanted me to do well, but I don't know if I was cognitively ready to show up the way that she wanted or needed me to. And it, it was very stressful. Yeah, it almost wasn't like, the, it wasn't the therapy necessarily that you needed. The, the, and and I, <laughs> yeah. I've been there. You and I have such a similar story because I had a probation officer when I was in high school. Her name was Betty Jo Picotti. And man, she was tough. That was a tough time. So we we've been through. Yeah, you and I. I, I feel like we're we're just we're, you're reflecting everything that I've I've been through with the ADHD, the inability to um, function in school. I did okay, but that you know there's there's a reason for that, and we won't get into it. But you know the American school system was implemented based on a, a Prussian school system that was created that was created to help handle social unrest and be able to collect taxes. So when you really look at the bigger picture, our school system is completely flawed. I mean, it's just a failing system. And for people like us, as we move forward, you, you can, you can see that it's not working for so many people like you and I, um, but that's a whole uh, different story. Um, so you're here, you're, you got this probation officer. Did you have the mirrors, dude? Like, did they have, did you have like the mirrors in there where it's like above the urinals and they can like stand and actually stare at you go? No, like the guy would come in there and be like an arm's reach away. Yeah. This guy. <laughs> yeah, there was no mirror. I mean, I would might I would might have been even more comfortable with the mirror, but yeah, like the guy breathing on my shoulder like made it even that much more uncomfortable. <laughs> you Whoa. Know? Like what yeah. happens next, bro? Yeah. Yeah, so it was like the mm -hmm. office. Another probation officer would do it because she she wouldn't do it herself. Yeah, but there would be whoever was in the office would just kind of um, just yeah, hang terrible. Out, so. yeah, it was strange. Yeah. It, 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 it is. was really really weird, right? And especially the one time where I couldn't do it, you know. And nobody's taking into account that like, hey, this is like a weird dynamic. And then she jumped on me, but I mean, she, you know, she was doing her her job. I I. I can respect that fact that she was she was doing it, but it was just this. I think it's more the system, right? Like they're doing the job that has been laid out for them to do. I don't necessarily think this was it was anything to do with her, but just the setup for it all was was a little bit weird. You know, I kind of feel weird. like those. I kind of feel like she had it out for you though a little bit, but because of the you know saying that you're dropping dirty when you weren't that 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 kind of like she didn't even give you a chance to say we'll come back tomorrow. Yeah, I mean that was. I had to come back tomorrow too and do it. <laughs> and do it. Yeah, of course you did, right? <laughs> I had to go. Uh, yeah, and so my parents have to like take off work and do other stuff. But I mean, you know, I I don't know the choices we make, right? So 
but from there, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So there, you you end up you're you're, you're you yeah. you go through high school. So so you do you eventually get off probation, and then so yeah. you're so you're still not like you so you go to recovery for a year, like in high school, like during this time. So does that happen yeah. like right after this? Like you can't you can't follow through with the probation. What happens? How does this happen? Tell me, tell yeah. me what goes on yeah. next. Yeah. Yeah. So I started to have these suicidal thoughts. Like everything was just kind of falling apart. Like it's really sad to reflect on that. I felt that horrible and that alone and that terrible, like early that, you know, 16, 17 years old. Like I just felt like the world would be better off without me. And this relationship with this, with this girlfriend I mentioned was just, it was disastrous. Things with my folks were deteriorating even faster. School was not going well. I had this probation thing, um, and I was getting in more trouble, more trouble. Um, things were kind of closing in, right? So I went to the uh, psych ward, UNC Chapel Hill, one time after after expressing these thoughts. And um, I mean, like fifty fifty one fifty, or what did they do? Yeah, yeah, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't want to go, <laughs> but they were gentle with it. I mean, they were gent. They didn't like drag me kicking and screaming. And um, I went in there, you know, and I think they looked at my medications and, you know, we talked, we did some groups and stuff. I wasn't able to connect the dots at that age, though. And then things were okay for a little bit, right? I didn't want to go back there. It was kind of, I kind of looked at it like a consequence. So I didn't want to go back there. After it was 72-hour hold or something, I got out. Um, and then I ended up having more of these thoughts, man. And I talked with my my guidance counselor at, at school. Um my foot, they talked to my parents, of course. I said, no, I don't want to go back. So they got the police involved at the school there. They had a police officer. So they got involved. They basically were like, you know, it's going to go one of two ways. Um, I don't know. I just felt so low, man. I felt so low hmm. in, in my life. And I was just like, man, I, I don't know like what to do here. You know, and I've been seeing, I've been seeing professionals my entire life to try to figure out, you know, I guess. What the heck is going on? You know, why can't, why? And I would always ask myself that question. Well, why can't everybody else do this? Go to school, do what they need to do, follow the rules, get in a little bit of trouble, have some teenage fun, and then move on with their life. But I just took it all to the extreme. You know, everything I did, I got caught for, and I just took it to the next level. So I ended up in the the hospital again this time. Everything around me is falling apart, Um, which it sounds crazy to say even without drugs and alcohol involved yet, you know, everything was just a disaster. It was, nothing was going well, not, not a single area of my life was going well. And my parents were like, Hey, we think you should go to rehab, you know, behavioral rehab, you know, try to get, um, these other areas of your life looked at anxiety, the depression, like go away for a bit, catch a break, like get some help and support that you need because they couldn't do it. And the outpatient type program I was working um, wasn't doing it, and it had never worked. So my parents had this guy come in, and this guy comes into this the the hospital. There, this time they're keeping me indefinitely, right? This is five six days. They take my shoes. They're like you're a flight risk and everything like that. So I'm like, okay. Um, and my parents mentioned this, and I told my parents where to go with that idea. Like, no, I mean when you're a teenager, all that matters is Friday night, your friends. Friday night, and I didn't want to be removed from that uh, situation, you know, even though my parents obviously could see better than I could. So this guy comes in, he's like, yeah, we've got this three-month program. You can come to, you live, we have little cabins. It's about 90 minutes from your house. It's voluntary program. You have to want to go, and we're going to teach you some of these life skills and tools. 
to help you be more productive, really enjoy life and, and make something of it. You know, this was his pitch. And I was like, yeah, that's great. I'm not interested Mm-mm. in this program. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was it, man. I thought, you know, I got my parents. I, I'll, I'll just kind of manipulate them a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll do better. Um, promise I'll do better. And, and things will be good. You know, I scared this guy away. He's not going to be, he's not going to want me to go there and cause problems. As he said, it was only the only way you could go to this program is if you, is if you, um, you said you wanted to voluntary, but my parents had another play. Um, so I wake up about oh. two days later. <laughs> yeah. I wake up about two days later and I see this guy, he's about two fifty, And I mean, he, he's ripped and, um, He's kicking on the bed, right? There's a metal bed in there. So he kicks on. He's got this little tap. And I look up. And the hospital staff with nurses and stuff like that. But I did have, like, this mental breakdown, I guess you could say, in this psych ward where they had this security guard guy that worked overnight. And I couldn't sleep. And I just lost it, man. I, I remember that, like, vividly. I just broke down uncontrollably crying. And, like, I wasn't, like, aggressive towards him, but, like, I was had a lot of, like, anger built up. I never was really an angry person like that outwardly. Like, I was always angry at myself for never being good enough. But I was never outwardly angry. And, like, I just lost it. This guy, he, like, wrapped me up in, like, this bear hug restraint. And he put me – I didn't even know they had this, but they had this padded room there on the unit. And he put me in there, and um, he sat down with me, and, like, he just – you know, we just kind of talked and I was like, dude, my life is over. And he's like trying to explain to me like, dude, it really hasn't even started, you know, give yourself a chance and all this stuff. Right. But I'm just like, nah, I mean, when I was, I was so hardheaded, I couldn't take in stuff from other people. I had all the answers. I wasn't listening to anything, but I do remember that night. It was like, oh man, that was a lot. Wow. So this guy comes in, right? And then there's a lady with him. This is a private security company, um, transport company. My parents hired to take me to this program. The program's called, uh, it was called Peninsula Village. It's in Knoxville, right outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. Jones Bend Road, Peninsula. It's three sides water, Tennessee River. You can't escape this place. Close to me, man. Close to me. Yeah. <laughs> Where you're at. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, I'm off Jones Bend Road. So they 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 hired these people to to take me to this program. My parents never mentioned anything about this program to me. And um, my first why would they? Then, I mean, you you were like they had this plan. They knew you were going to say no. So why would they actually say here? Let me let me let, let us tell you our plan for you. <laughs> it's just not not going to work that way, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. My first thought when these people are explaining to me the deal, I've never faced anything up in my life really until this point, mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to face it now. So I'm thinking I'm running away from this. I'm going to run away because I don't know how to face anything. No so money, deal- no car, <laughs> no, no clothes, nothing. You're going to try to take off, right? I mean, this is the way yeah. we rationalize things when we're young. We think we can just run away, but not going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. So these people put me in their car. They're really nice people, like just really, really nice people to cut a long, long story short. We stop at a rest stop. I've got a pair of gym shorts on and buddy. I go to the washroom and buddies hold in the back of my, my shorts, my gym shorts, but they got the rubber, the elastic, right? So it's not like a pair of jeans where you can really get a good grip. And I just have this impulse, man. And I'm just like, I'm out of here. And I just like jet. And, um, like looking back, like what the heck? 
I hit this wall along the along the interstates there. They have those little fences, a half fence, maybe a little string of barbed wire, keep the deer back. And I hit that fence full speed. I didn't see it. The adrenaline was running so much. And I just barrel like barrel rolled over it, like flipped over it. And um, and I was on the run from these guys, like the security company that my mom, my parents had hired to bring me to rehab. Now I'm on the run from them. And I mean, it only took a couple of hours, man, because of the situation of the suicidal thoughts and leaving the psych ward. I mean, that is going to, there was a whole, I mean, there might've been 40 police cars, man, that were involved in this sort of, uh, this chase, right? So a couple of hours, man, I was, uh, I, uh, I got picked up. I was tired at that point. I was like, dude, I, it was so hot out and I got stung by a hot. Yeah. I was going to say, what time of year is this? Is this like the middle of summer, winter? Yeah, middle of summer. Yeah, it was so mm-hmm. hot out, and, and I was just done, man. Um, I was just done, you know. And then, the, then the, the nice guy security team was over. They put handcuffs on me, put me in the car, and you know, I broke down again, man, to the lady that was driving, you know, about what this place was like and how long I was going to be there. You know, I didn't know um, any of that stuff, and it was scary. It was really scary, and like what I was going to do, and. Yeah, I mean, it was just terrifying, and and I ended up there, Peninsula Village. They, you go into a basement at first when you when you when you first go. Uh, it's called Stu, the special treatment unit. It's a basement, chicken wire on the windows, a big steel door with a deadbolt. You're not going anywhere, and I had to wear hospital gowns, and I had to sit in the day room. And I looked, when I looked in, I got in the door. Everybody looks at you, right? It's like the new guy in jail, and everybody looks at you, and everybody is just sitting on these. It's a half wall all the way across, and there's a bunch of little bunks. And everybody's just staring at me with, like, they just look blank. Nobody talking, nothing. And I'm like, oh, man, like, my parents have no idea what they've signed me up for. They don't know what this – and I'm sitting there, and they're like, yeah, you're going to sit here. You got to wear the hospital gowns. You're on suicide watch. Um, you have to eat, you have to get a bag lunch and you have to eat with plastic fork and spoon. You know, my life changed in, in a matter of what, seven hour drive. Um, and you can't leave And the staff there around their neck, they have these little buzzers. And if they, and they tap that buzzer, everybody from the campus comes running to do restraints and, mm-hmm. um, they have a little timeout room and restraint bed, everything. I mean, the full nine, right. They were, is everybody well- your age, like pretty much around your age. Yeah, it's all for like teenagers. So like th- mm-hmm. 14 to like 18. 18, you can sign yourself out, right? So 14 to 17, if your parents put, like, you'd have to agree after 18 to remain in the program. Yeah, so now so. You're, you're, no, you're, you're no longer in control. Uh, what what happens next, man? I mean, then what kind of, did, did they start therapy? What did they do? What kind of therapy were we talking about here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the pro- I ended up staying here for 12 months this, this program. So it was a, it was a type of program when you do the work, you'll, you'll get your, uh, you'll be able to leave, you know, and everybody kind of felt differently. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, we, we would do therapy. We would do two group therapy sessions a day. Um, you would see a psychiatrist like once a week, once a month. Sometimes I had a family therapist. I do phone calls with my parents. It went terrible. It went terrible mm-hmm. though. Cause I was like, you guys screwed me. You screwed me because this place is terrible. How long um, were you resistant? Like how, how how long were you resistant to therapy in there the whole time? Did you, did you eventually break and like start, you know, yeah. what happened? Yeah. Like three months, three months, um, of this thing of, of there, of being in this special treatment unit, everybody else was leaving about one month or two months, you know, cause the idea of the treatment back then at this place was to break you down and then move and then graduate you to the cabin program and build you back up. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, with some new tools and, and, and new outlook on life. Uh, but I was not ready to let go of it. And I had this, uh, the staff there never got friendly with you. You, you called them, you know, Mr. Whatever in, in their, their name. And it was never, they were never your buddies and they were enforcing rules. Everything had a rule. I mean, you had three minutes to go pee and, and five minutes to, to, you know, go poo and everything was timed. You had, you had seven minutes to have a shower every night, uh, two minutes to brush your teeth. That's the regiment we lived by every day. Um, three, <laughs> three months. I mean, it's crazy. It wow. was crazy. Um, and you used to have to do chores and clean up. You couldn't talk. You couldn't read. Most of the time you just sat there on your bunk, maybe made faces at another person. But if you got caught doing for that, there was consequences. But I had this conversation after three months with this fellow named Mr. Riddle. And um, he was a heavy hitter. Every Anytime I asked a question, if I wanted to ask a question, I had to recite the 12 steps. And if I got anything wrong, I sit back down and maybe I could ask it tomorrow. So I had to learn the 12 steps. And I didn't have anything with them written on them. I had to just remember them after looking at them like a couple times. Um, so he, that's the kind of guy he was. He was expecting a lot um, from us. And um, he told me one day, he told me, he said, Brad, he said, you're going to stay down here for five months. And that what you want? And I'm like, well, obviously not. But at this point, I didn't know any different. You know, I've become accustomed. I do well in structure. I do well in jail. I do well in treatment programs. I do well when there's mm-hmm. a structure. I, I do really, really well in those environments um, when I know what to expect. But um, he told me, he said, look, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this idea of fake it till you make it. Because he's like, I know you're not interested in doing well and doing better. And you're upset with your folks. And you have all this stuff going on. And you're angry and everything else. But he said, I want you just to fake it till you make it. I want you just to put on a smile and freaking show up. Do what you what you know you need to do because you know what needs to be done and um, see where it gets you. And um, I didn't r- really take it in at the time. But the next day I woke up and like it just was like this light bulb moment of like, I'm just going to do whatever is asked of me. I'm going to be like the top dog resident in here because I knew everything that needed to be done. I knew I was capable. And a couple of weeks later, I was transitioning out to, to the cabin program, you know, mm. so – that was it worked. sort of like, yeah, it worked for me. I had no. Oh, you li- you listened. You listened for one time in your life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's incredible, isn't it? When we listen. Yeah, it was powerful, man. Mm. So, mm. so cabin program. So you, yeah, go over to this, and you've never really, you've never had a problem with alcohol or anything at this point. No drugs. This is just Nothing. like, wow, that is such a trip, and it's. I've never heard. I don't think I've ever heard someone that had to repeat the 12 steps and know them by heart prior to having a problem with substances. That's, that's really uncommon. So, (laughs) so you do the, you do the, the cabin program and it's successful. What's what's it like? What's this is going to, we're diving deep into everything here, but what's the relationship like with your parents at this time? I mean, it's getting better. I think mm-hmm. they came to visit me like one time, but everything was so structured. I think they could come for two hours. I think at the end okay. of the three months there, they could come for a lunch. Like, um, so things are getting better. Like I'm starting to see sort of, you know, with all this reflection, I mean, three months literally of reflection. Ooh. I think I'm starting to see that everything else isn't the problem. Like I had been blaming everything else on being the problem. I, I started to realize like, you know, and it sounds really harsh, but like I was the problem. My behaviors were the problem. My choices were the problem. And those are things that I could start to work on. 
Um, bit so of humility. Started, mm-hmm. Yeah, I started to let mm-hmm. down my guard a little bit, let my parents, you know, I started to learn how to communicate, like how I was feeling, what was going on. I mean, we did a ton of check-in groups. We done a, did a ton of exploration groups. Um, and a lot of people there were, you know, struggling with substances too. It wasn't, and there were some that were just like straight behavioral, you know, all the same symptoms to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hadn't got there yet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, things were improving with them. So I go into the cabin program and I mean, I was there, you know, for another nine months, um, out in the cabin program, we live with about six, eight guys. We had a, you know, staff with us 24 seven. It was all same structured rules. We woke up at, you know, 5.30 AM every day. We did meditation. We set goals for the day. We used to, the cabin had no electricity or running water. So we used to go pee. We, we called them like tubes. So they were like PVC pipes smashed in the ground. And the landscape is beautiful out there. It was kind of mountainous, like hilly and we're right, right above the river. So you'd go out there in the morning and you'd have your pee in this little tube and you'd, you'd be looking over the river and you'd put your shoes on. You had to lock them up at night to make sure you didn't run away. And, you know, we had a lot of responsibilities and we'd pack up every morning, you know, rain, sunny, hot, whatever it was, you'd wear a pair of jeans, tuck in your t-shirt with a belt. Every single day you'd walk across campus. Like it was two, three miles. You'd walk across, get your breakfast. Um, you do a little formation. I mean, everything was structured down. There was no questions about what the expectations were. We mm-hmm. knew everything. And then you would, you know, you'd work through levels, right? As you, as you worked on your life and you improved and you built trust and relationships, then you'd work on levels and you started out as a pre-mouse. So you'd have to be on a rope. You'd have to hold a rope with another older member or a staff member. Um, and then you'd have to ask to like break the rope, like basically like stop holding it if you wanted to go to the bathroom or or something then you worked your way up and like by the time i left the program i was able to freely um walk around wherever and do whatever and you got extra privileges like you could have extra Mm -hmm. ice creams or as much food as you wanted but that point it seemed cool but you had developed that discipline to where if you had those privileges at the beginning of unlimited ice cream and fountain pop and food you would have went to the extreme but as you worked through the program you develop um that discipline about you know what's appropriate and what's not so, so how did this how did this translate to the real world when you actually exit? What happens? Yeah. So I mean, things were great when I first got out. I mean, I, I got accepted into college, which was like, wow, that you know, because we went to school there too. So I graduated high school, which I never would have done outside of this program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got my own place. I got my own apartment. Um, after that, I got a job. Got like my, my, I had a job before at a Burger King, but then I got another, I got this other, um, I got another, like my first job out of it and I felt good. I mean, I was on top of the world, man, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, 12 months of working on yourself and like honing your skills and everything. Like you're, you know, you're humming after that. Um, and then I got my own place. I met this girl I used to know before she was incredible. We got Mm -hmm. together. Um, that was good. Everything was good, man. And then what happened, but is I got this bright idea making my bed every day, folding my laundry and putting it away, um, having structure to my life. I don't need all that stuff, man. I don't need all that stuff. Um, And I started to get into drinking. It wasn't like this big, massive problem, but I never really knew, you know, it was good. But like you mentioned too, I remember the first time I got invited to this party, right? I went to this party and they had uh, the Everclear and everything and the fruit juice and the cooler. And I got into that stuff. And uh, my goodness, I felt, you know, I felt the same way I did after working that program for 12 months, but I felt Mm -hmm. that way in about five minutes. 
I love yeah, serenity. That's great. Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? Wonderful when you first get drunk and you get that first get buzz. And you, but the problem is you just can't keep chasing it. It's like you can't ever find that first initial wonderful yeah. warm feeling you get after the first two or three drinks, right? It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Exactly. Yeah. So I kind of identified then that this was a faster way to feel good about myself and, and mm. didn't see the consequences. Even when I went to the recovery program, we never talked about drugs and alcohol. Um, I knew people struggled with it. We talked about it here and there when people would re have really tough cravings, but we focused more on the behaviors and the emotions behind it. That was our thing is like, how are you feeling and how, or how are you going to work through that um, productively, appropriately, you know, and manage that. And um, so I got to drinking. It was nothing though, man. It was nothing out of the ordinary that anybody else wasn't doing. But yeah, mm -hmm. I had that little hamster wheel turning, you know, this was this was pretty doggone cool. I was able to connect with people and be part of something that I had struggled my entire life to be part of social circles and, and create connection. And this was just like, bang, you know, I mean, the walls went down and here I was, man, you know, and people loved it. That was another hard part is people loved it. Not that they didn't love me when I wasn't doing that stuff, but people really loved me. You know, and the next day I wake up, I've got all these messages, man, that was a great time, dude. Can't wait till the next one. And I'm like, dude, nobody's ever, I've never been that guy. To where mm -hmm. people, I've always been that guy to like, my buddies would hang out, but I would have to reach out. And now did people the chick, are, Did the chick you were with at the time, did she start seeing this change? I mean, did it, did she, was she in on this partying too? Or was she kind of, did this start to fall apart? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. No, this girl was, she was an incredible human. She never was really into partying. Never became unmanageable for her. I mean, she did from time to time, but I was a, I mean, as things progressed, we stayed together for a while, a long time through the addiction. Um, and she tried her best to help me out. Um, hmm. But at the end, kind of threw her hands up in the air like, you know, enough is enough. But she was never part of the fun. I mean, definitely there was some enabling involved, you know, out of mm -hmm. what she probably thought was right. Now we've talked since we got older. It's like, oh, man, you know, like, what the heck were we thinking, right? But no, this was a, this was an incredible relationship that I took for granted, you know, just to basically put it out there, you know, I took it for granted and um, I was not a good person in that relationship after a while. Um, but what really flipped my life upside down was I was at my own place there. Right. And um, the girl had moved out for a little bit. We were on and off and she moved out. I had a buddy of mine move in and this guy was connected. He knew everybody. I mean, every party, I mean, we used to go to parties every day of the week. Um, and it really even wasn't bad at that point. Things weren't bad, but it was definitely cementing a foundation for dependence. But we were playing cards one night, and a buddy of mine takes out a, a pill bottle. And at the time, I was very naive to prescription medication or anything like that. And he pulls out this bottle, and he's going to take this pill. And I'm like, hey, look, uh, look, man, if you're not feeling good, we'll just put your chips aside. You can come get in the next game and whatever. No problem. And was it like, Oxys? Oh, no. What was it? This was Percocets. Per okay, Percocets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't get to the Oxys yet. We couldn't afford mm. those yet, but, um, but yeah, he pulled this out and I said, dude, what does it do? He's I'll make you feel good. All this, that. And I said, dude, you know, give me one of those. And man, once that first one I had, you know, the booze took a back seat pretty quick, man, to, to this stuff. Um, and I was able to weasel my way into, uh, to getting a whole box of prescription pills from somebody I knew after this, because I just couldn't get enough, man. And I, and I was naive and I had no idea about dependence. I had no idea about addiction. I had no idea about withdrawal 
um, until about 30 days later when this box ran out. I was in college at the time and I was I was nodding out a lot. I was driving one time to school where I went to school was a one way road. And um, I had passed out at a red light. I had put my foot on the brake at a red light. And um, it was crazy, man. A guy from work, I was working at a restaurant at the time in the kitchen flipping burgers. And this guy was like, Brad, I saw you on the street because a lot of people went to this this college. I saw you on the side of the street there and I was honking my horn and everything. And man, I didn't know what was up with you, but there was, there's so much traffic here, right? Just zoom, zoom, zoom. He's like, so I didn't stop. He's like, well, what the heck happened to you? Why were you stopped at that red light? Maybe car trouble or something. And um, all I remember from that is that there was um, a firefighter opened up the door of my car and I came to, and um, I looked in my rear view mirror and I saw a fire truck ambulance. There was a, yeah, there was only a fire truck and ambulance. And I grabbed the door out of a panic, closed it, and I just sped off. And, oh, um, yeah, it was um, – so I was heavy into this stuff, and I didn't know what the heck was going on until about 30 days in. I had another buddy, and I was doing cocaine too. I got it started with doing cocaine too uh, during this. You know, so Did you I start did. dealing or what? I mean, how did you support that? What, the cocaine? Yeah, I mean – I mean, yeah, I would – I mean, a little bit here and there, but I was never mm -hmm. a kingpin or anything like – to yeah. my buddies maybe or, or something they didn't want to really risk it for the biscuit type thing right they didn't want to get in a mm -hmm. bunch of trouble in the bad neighborhoods or know the people and but um, you would go do it yeah me i was yeah yeah what you know what do we got to lose right um so yeah i got into doing that but after the 30 days i ran out of the pills and i said oh, i'll just get on my life i you know and then i started to feel really unwell and I'm like, I don't have a cold or sick or anything, but my legs are, I'm feeling this ache in my legs, you know, after my last pills. And I mean, I was eating so many of these things every day, but, um, I called a buddy of mine and I said, dude, I'm feeling, you know, I'm out of the stuff. I'm feeling really unwell, man. I'm really, my body's hurting and I'm, I'm all I'm thinking about is getting more, more, but I don't know, like I wasn't in that world yet, you know, I, I cause mm -hmm. I had the supply and then. He's like, oh, man, it's just withdrawal, man. You just have to get more. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, well, how do we do – how do we go about that? You know, because I don't have a doctor or anything to write a prescription mm -hmm. or a reason. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, I went down that rabbit hole, man. And um, wow. now I've got to start getting them off the off the streets. And, you know, I mean, it just starts taking a heavy hit, man, um, right away, right? Because I've got the partying. Yeah. Got the party and the drink and I've got the, the pills are in the mix and I've got the cocaine and I can't get really enough of any of them. And yeah, I don't have yeah, a lot yeah. of money, man. So it's, it's a good question how, how you're supporting this, man, because yeah, you, you do, you know, a few grimy things here and there to, to kind of make the ends meet that, that obviously I think looking back, none of us are proud of, um, yep. but, but I yeah. couldn't, you know, I, I ended up, you know, quickly, man. And there's a lot of people share their story, man, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, I get it, man. But I would have, I couldn't survive dude. After a couple of years of doing this, I, I, this thing was falling apart. I got arrested again when I was 18, 19 too. Um, and I got mm -hmm. charged with a felony this time. I was with a buddy of mine. We were going into cars that were open. I was the lookout. He opened the car handle. A guy was walking his dog at 3am. Hey, what are you doing? And, um, I was the lookout. And I saw two cruisers coming through the woods with lights on, no sirens, but their lights were on. The old the chargers they used they used to use. I don't know if they still use yeah. them down there. They had these chargers, and I'm like, oh shit, man, you know. And we split, we run. This girlfriend, of course, she helps me out with everything in my life. She picks us up at three in the morning. We're about to leave this small town, and 
uh, she's like, oh, I think that we we told we didn't tell her what we were doing. We're like, oh, we're just whatever. You know, we're leaving this party. Just need a ride. You know, just lying. I lied all the time. That was just, you know, it was mm -hmm. every day. If I was alive and breathing, I was lying. Mm -hmm. And um, the cops light up, light us up. Right. And um, we're going to jail for this, man. Um, mm -hmm. So and that was a crazy story, man, because then I got arrested that night, but they didn't put all the charges on the docket. Right. So then my brother bails me out $750, I think, through a bondsman. He bails me out. I go back. I, I'm, I'm at my parents' place. I lost my apartment. I got kicked out of school. I don't know if I mentioned all that stuff. Everything fell apart. I lost my apartment. My parents bought me a $12,000 car. I lost a car in that in that thing there. Um, every Everything's, you know, I'm full-blown addiction right now you know, six months into this thing, six months into this innocent little party, one pill at a poker game. So and now you're uh, like, you're there, you, you lost the car, you're arrested, you're, you're, you're going back now, you're bailed out, your brother hooks you up. Um, do you, do you go back to court? Do you, do you go and fight this thing? And are you still trying to use during this time and living it? Now you're living with your parents again? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. I didn't know any other way to live. Um, yeah. but to use, you know, when I felt the guilt, right. My parents spent probably over a hundred thousand dollars on that program. They used to yeah. come see me. We were buying flights all the time to go home and visit. You know I mean? I just felt mm -hmm. like I went to college. They paid for that. My parents have given me, uh, every opportunity to do something with my life. And I felt like, like, man, what a bum, what a loser, you know, what a loser. There's people out there with a lot less that do a lot more. And I have every opportunity to do something and like, dude, this, you know, this is where we are. You know, this is where my life is at. I'm surrounded by good people. I had a ton of good people in my life. I didn't hang out with a bunch of people that were doing what I was doing. I, I had one buddy that did what I was doing and the rest of the people I hung out with were like everyday good college working professionals. You know, it was yeah. very, it was very, you and I are the same, man. Like you said, remember we, we did the podcast I was on. We're like, you know, it wasn't that bad for me. Like I had it pretty good. Yeah. And so strange true. that how we wind up in these situations and it's, it's just, it's addiction and, and it's this predisposition. So what, like yeah. what happens, what happens next? So you, do you end up going to, to jail for a while? Like what, like not what? Yet. Not yet. I do, but <laughs> not yet for this thing here, because the the night after played a big significant role. See, I have a younger brother too in my life and my parents had kind of went out on a limb to let me live with them and they forgot to put all the charges on the the docket for the night before so there were more charges so i had to be rearrested fingerprinted and go through the whole process again bail out again and this is all around the same in incident so they showed up at my parents place my dad my stepdad who it, he's 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 a rule guy he's rules there's rules there's he's stern on the rules and uh, my younger brother's getting ready for school and this officer's like arresting me in their, you know, the entryway of their house, dude. And I, I could just see at that point, you know, like I didn't even need to ask the question about coming back here, you know, and I was pretty low, man, at that point, you know, I was really low. Money was tight and people's ability and, and desire to bail me out of these situations were running thin and I, I could feel that. Um, but thankfully my brother and, and, and his girlfriend and, you know, they came together, bailed me out of jail again. Um, and then I get a court date, but we put it off for a while. My girlfriend's parents at the time paid for this lawyer. I mean, there's a ton of people in this story that helped me out, um, to get to where I am. It takes a village to, mm -hmm. to really, you know, for my story, for me to, to destroy my life and to rebuild my life, both took a village, um, so they pay $2,000 like for this lawyer. We go, you know, we wait, we go for this strategy, man. It's crazy though. They wanted me to do 12 months in jail. 
The lawyer ended up pulling some strings. I said it was for credit card debt. I was stealing to pay off credit card debt. I was overly stressed about trying to do what I was doing. It was all bullshit. They mm -hmm. bought it though. They kind of bought it, I guess. I got put on felony probation. I had to provide a, a, a blood sample and um, things kind of heat up a notch. You know the interesting thing though about this whole second probation thing? No drug tests, nothing. Um, hmm. Nothing at this time drug test wise, which is strange. I had to pay money, but I could barely afford to pay that. Um, I was calling the probation officer. I had, she was nice. She She wasn't like my first one. But um, I'd call her and be like, I can't afford the 35 bucks. She's like, you have to pay it by tomorrow. You're going to jail. You know, it was just that type of stuff. <clears throat> I was spending all my money on the substances. But then I go from there. Um, I go from there. Man, I get on the methadone program too at some point. I'm not off the cocaine. I'm not off the booze. It was a big problem because I'm on methadone. But I'm, they, they pick up that I'm drinking a lot. My drinking just went up, right? We were partying, mm -hmm. sitting by the pool mm -hmm. all day, just kicking it. And um, they used to breathalyze me in the morning when I'd show up. And if I blew anything, I couldn't get the methadone. So I would end up in withdrawals all the time because I was blowing into this thing and not being able to get my methadone. And I was doing a little cocaine. So I was I was having dirty urines. But they didn't really care about that. They wanted me to go to the group therapy. But I was selling cars at the time. I actually worked this car dealership. And I would tell them I got to get to my job, you know, more BS. Um, so I just kind of, you know – Throughout this couple of years of my life, man, I just did the bare minimum basics and um, tried to escape as often as I could from who I was, you know, and, and then more things fell apart, right? Because I'm on that probation. I lo I'm losing jobs, um, relationships, man. I'm, I'm looking rough, you know, from all this stuff. And so what happens next? So you, you, you go to court. You, you've got you're, you're through it. You get felony probation. Do you make it through the probation? Like, where's the moment where you go? Okay, moment of clarity. I'm an addict. I admit it. Like, I have to do something about it. Where yeah. do? How does this actually happen? Yeah, it's a good question. And about 2009, I think it's about 2000. I'm terrible with dates. <clears throat> Remembering anything is a challenge for me. But um, it, roughly in that era, that time. I was on the methadone and my life was falling apart. At this point in time, I was living on my brother's floor in his bedroom. I used to live on his couch in the living room, but I think after a while, he was kind of embarrassed when having friends over that his brother lives on his couch and is not really going anywhere. So he's like, yeah, so I was sleeping on the floor in his bedroom. And I woke up one morning and the, you know, the little slats and like those, those vinyl uh, blinds, the light mm -hmm. came through there at like this weird angle. It never happened before. And it just kind of I, – I started having these thoughts after that about like, look, dude, you're going to die. And before you do, why don't you give yourself a chance at like not being fucked up all the time? You know, and the thought – those thoughts came and went pretty frequently, but this one stuck around. I couldn't shake it. I was like, you know, get out of here. Get out of here. Like enough with that. I don't want to hear about changing my life. I don't even know how to do that. Now, I had been going to 12-step meetings and celebrate recovery meetings and support and therapists and stuff here and there um, when my folks would, like, ask me to do stuff. Um, but this morning, I picked up the phone, 10,000-pound phone. I picked it up. I called my grandparents, the only people who might be interested in, in, um, in helping me out. So I called them. I said, look, this is where I'm at. Like, I'm screwed. I don't know a way out. Like, can you help me out? And – um they chokes me up a bit this part. They drove down from Canada there like the next day. They're like 65 years old. And um, 
we went to uh to this detox facility in Florida. And I was like, yeah, you know, so this was like a detox. It's not really treatment, but it's a detox. And I was like getting off all this stuff, dude. I mean, the methadone cold turkey, I was on 50 milligrams a day because uh, I went to the methadone clinic and I was like, I want to get off the methadone. But they're like, it's going to be 10 months. And I was like, look, I don't have 10 months um, to do a taper. I couldn't afford it. It was 12 bucks a day. As sad as that sounds, I couldn't afford it. I didn't have a car. It was a 30 minute drive to the clinic. I didn't have a car. My brother was like tired of me using his car and um, everything else, right? So my time was running out. So I went to this detox clinic. I got off everything. Um, the cops were looking for me again at this point. I finished the felony probation. The cops were looking for me again at this point. And uh, my grandparents were like, look, why don't you come to Canada with us? And you can like live there and we'll help you out and whatever. And I'm like, oh, you know, my friends and all this shit, you know, the stuff that doesn't matter. I was like, it matters so much. But then they showed up at 5 a.m. They're like, yo, Brad, this is madness. This is crazy. The shape you're in. Cops are looking for you again. Like, why don't you just come up there and just hang wow. out for a bit? Um, and I decided to. So I went up there. <clears throat> With them, um, and I was still drinking. I was probably I wasn't doing any hard drugs anymore, but my life was a lot better. Uh, my life was a lot better. Um, I got a job painting, which was like it was a cool job. Like it sucked working in place without air conditioning. It was hot, wearing a pair of pants all day. But I got a job. I was able to show up. I was drinking a lot, and then my life really, really changed on January 11, 2010. I decided to come back to the U.S. to visit my. My girlfriend, my parents, my brothers, everything like that. I got to the airport in Toronto, and the customs guy from the U.S. was asking me a ton of questions. This, this, this. And then they're like, oh, we want to take you in this back room. We need all your ID. More questions. Then they're like, oh, man, it's all mis a, a big misunderstanding. You know, we're going to get you on your flight and be on your way. And I had a late, and I was like, this is all weird, right? Like, there's a longer story to it, but it was really weird, red flags. I knew I probably should have just, like, stayed and been like, nah, I'm not even going. But mm -hmm. I did. And then I landed in New York City and I'm like, is a layover in New York City? And I'm like, if something would have happened, surely, Matt, they would be here, right? They're not going to give me any wiggle room. Right. The cops were looking for me. Nothing was there. So I'm like, yo, I'm, dude, I have made it again. I have mm -hmm. made it again, man. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, worried about nothing. I land mm -hmm. in Raleigh, man, and um, I'm the last one off the plane. And there's the police. There's, there's four or five police officers. They've got my picture. And um, I'm thinking, yeah, well, you know, I can't stay. And it was a long, like, three-hour flight and everything, you know, because my stomach, I mean, the knot that was in my stomach, I never had one like it. It's mm -hmm. like you're you're headed to, you know, your demise and you can't turn around, you know. You're, you're free-falling and you just can't turn around. So it was killing me, man. Um, mm -hmm. And then when they were there, it was kind of a relief, honestly. It was like, thank goodness, you know, at least, you know, now we have some answers. I got charged handle with this four, now. Yeah. Yeah. And I got charged with four counts of drug trafficking. And now I didn't know how serious that was or, or I didn't know how anything came about, honestly, until they told me because I drug was drug trafficking. Were you, were you taking drugs across? No, I wasn't. No, no. So this was from two years prior, two years prior. I had a buddy of mine who got pinched really bad, dude, really, really bad dude. And he got caught and then he flipped on everybody. So he set me up with selling drugs to an undercover. Um, mm -hmm. And I never was a drug dealer, but he was pushing me, man. And I don't want to remove any accountability because I may, I did these things in my life, but he was pushing me and they were pushing me to like pull rabbits out of a hat when that wasn't even my gig. 
Yeah. Um, and I did it. Ultimately, I did it. And um, I mean, this was all for, I don't know, maybe $600, you know? That's all it takes, man, to really get yourself in some serious trouble. And wow. um, yeah, so I get booked into jail. The bond is $250,000. Obviously, I'm here to stay. My grandparents and my family up in Canada because my folks are tapped out financially wise supporting the madness. But my uncles and aunts and my grandparents has come up with, you know, the cash money for this attorney, um, $25,000 or something. I stay in jail for eight months. We're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. They're getting all my documents about um, my treatment history. Basically, they were just stand the leg we had to stand on is that I was addicted to drugs. And that was my problem. I was not a drug dealer, which I was not. And they were trying mm -hmm. to figure that out. The DA wasn't necessarily saying I was, but they wanted proof that I wasn't. So they got binders. And I, when I went into the courtroom after eight months, they had about 15 binders of maybe a thousand pages each sitting on the desk. And they were saying, this is, you know, they went and got all the records from everybody I had seen over the years to say, hey, look. Um, this was the deal. Plus I wasn't a citizen. I held a green card in the U S. So after the charges, um, I was more than likely going to be deported back to Canada that saved my ass. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up, I, and we went into this because they weren't going to do a plea. The DA wasn't, the DA wanted like two to three years. My lawyer's like, no, no, like time served on eight months. Like that's as, that's all we're going to agree to. So he explained to me, that day, after eight months of waiting in county jail, which is just straight chaos and madness. But like I said, I thrive in those environments. So it mm -hmm. was bad. I missed life, but it wasn't the worst, I guess. It had mm -hmm. its moments where it was mm -hmm. really bad, but I never really pictured myself being in jail and prison and, and, and all that type of stuff. But yeah, there I was, you know, there's no way out. Um, I had to kind of deal with it. But that let me lay the foundation before I skip ahead, you know, that let me lay the foundation for my sobriety, self-development books, talking with the old timers, going to meetings. Um, that eight, eight months in jail. Eight months in jail. Yeah. I used mm -hmm. to go to Bible studies and, and I'm mm -hmm. not a religious person, but I just was trying to find any spiritual connection to something other than mm -hmm. me because I knew my best thinking ended me up in this place. And I don't want to, and I realized too, in that moment, this is my third charge. You know, I am a convicted felon. This is my third charge. This stuff's going to stick. I'm guilty of this stuff. I admitted like, dude, I, and there's no way around that. I mean, the guy met with me and I, I've seen the guy since, um, you know, be like, Hey, like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, they know, they know it was me. So, but I took a full accountability in front of that judge that day. And the, and the lawyer told me, look, we're going to have to leave this up to the judge. And I'm thinking something like on TV, right, Matt? Maybe 15 or 20 minutes of talking and they'll ask me a few questions and I can be like, yeah, you know, I'm a changed man and mm -hmm. I can, you know, share my transformation with them. None of that, man. Five minutes. Mm -hmm. End of the day, it was about 4.30. It was about 4.30. I come out of the little bull, they call it a bullpen or whatever. Yeah. It's a little holding cell before you come into mm -hmm. the jail. I um, And it's kind of, it's it, it's was eye-opening in a sense. And I knew nobody really cared. My old life, my old friends, nobody really cared about the situation I was in. But when I walk into the courtroom, it's my mom and my brother, mm -hmm. you know, and I, it, I already kind of knew before that none of that shit I thought mattered mattered. But then when that happened, I was like, yo, none of that shit that you thought mattered actually matters. You know, it's time to to grow up and, and, and get on with life here because that 
you know, running around acting up type stuff. Like it, it's not cool anymore. Cause look no, at the where buck stops, at. man. The buck stops. That's at your moment right there where you see them, you know, out there yeah. where you see them out there sitting there looking at you and, and how many times have they been through this? Too, you know? too many. And it just, it just hits you. I, I've been there too, where you look at your parent, my parents, I'm like my dad, you know, I'm sitting there on the edge of the bed <clears throat> post accident being charged with a felony DUI at three o'clock in the morning, sobbing. And, you know, my dad's there in some residence in, you know, mm-hmm. five states, you know, away from where he actually lives, trying to help me, you know, at three o'clock in the morning. And he's been doing this for years, you know, granted, I hadn't been in trouble for many, many years. I had been in trouble when I was a kid like you. And then I did it again. You know, it's like, this is just pathetic. You yeah. Know? Like, how long am I going to do this thing? How, how long? And, and wh- how long is it going to last? Like, When's the next time? Like that, that this is gonna be. I'm in prison. You must have thought if I do this again, I'm gonna be in jail forever. Yeah. No, I definitely. I mean, I would have been for sure. Mm-hmm. So, and it's so true. It just, it, you know, I mean that. That's what I think when we're wrapped up in it, we have a hard time realizing, man, that this stuff affects the people around us more than we could ever imagine. You know, me being a father of three right now, I could not imagine. I can't even bring my my thoughts there to one of my daughters or or my son being in a, in the positions that I was in I was lucky to be alive I mean sometimes there were situations I was in where between life and death a sheet of paper probably could have fit through and that's how scary it got throughout the whole you know the thing and my folks don't you know know all the stories and they they never no. will they never will by the will. skin of your teeth man like I made it by the skin of my teeth it was like literally literally like yeah. centimeters away from being paralyzed from the waist down in that accident you know it's it's interesting to me the way life works i i <clears throat> and this is a little bit off topic but the other night it's about five o'clock in the afternoon uh late evening and sorry early evening and i hear this horrible screech right this this terrible tires peeling out and then this terrible crash and I walk out of my house and I go up the road and this woman has gone off the road and there is a guy trying to get these two young girls out of the car. They're probably, I think there were six and eight and uh, the mother, as I see her, she's dead. I mean, she's been killed and you know, her head has been crushed by the, the car and the telephone pole that she's hit and the little girl is crying. She wants her mom. And, um, it was deep, Brad. I have not been, I have not oh. been in something like that. I was trying to, trying to help these little girls get out of the car and also standing with this woman who, whose pulse is fading. She's dying and she's not going to make it. There's just, there's just no way based on her condition and what I saw. Mm. And I think to myself, how lucky guys like you and I are to have all of those chances, you know, and here's this woman, this mother of two that just, you know, random, like life is so fragile. And like you said, by the skin of our teeth, we just, we just skate by. I don't, I don't mean to go off topic, but it reminded me of that, you know, that moment where it's like, I saw life leave this woman mm-hmm. and I thought how grateful I am to have what I have and to have the family I have and the people that I have around me and to, to be able to be on this side of it. And I know how different your life is now, right? I mean, you have just this completely different life, but, uh. How did, how did that, how did that all happen? Did you get sober at this point? Was this when you started to really change? Yeah, this was it. That that's the date is uh, January 11th. You know, before that last day I was like free before I went into the jail and then 
And then the the judge sat back on that day and kind of he took off his glasses and then he wiped his eyes like he was tired. I was like, oh, gosh. Um, and he said six to eight months, you know, Department of Corrections. And that was the sentence, you know, so we kind of got that. And I also knew that that was only the beginning because I would have to go through the deportation process afterwards. So then after that, I was in the custody of uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And I spent another four months, man, traveling the country from jail to jail to jail to jail. Um, one of the craziest things I've ever you know, been, been a part of, man. Um, most people ship out next day, like you're getting deported. So there's no real reason necessarily to kind of keep you. I had my own passport. They get mm -hmm. you a flight. They don't tell you when it's going to be. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> it was interesting, man. But wow. yeah, that was it though, man. That was it. That was sort of, you know, when I did a lot of looking back, you know, when I had the tools, I had the insight, I had the know-how, you know, 12 months and I had been to yeah. a bunch of, you know, I had been to everything. I had been involved with everything. Um, I knew what I needed to do and I had to get back to it and I had to do the hard work. I had to stop thinking I had the answers and start realizing that I don't have everything figured out and I need to start asking for help and get support and lean into people, um, and find a community of people that could help me, you know, and then, um, yeah. And then, I mean, it's off to the races, right? Baby steps, man. My life didn't. Um, cause then I was up in Canada, right? I started back over when I got deported, I got out of jail from a year. I had a cardboard box with letters from my grandmother. That's all mm -hmm. I had. Um, I didn't have anything, anything more than that. I had, um, you know, I mean, I had a broken resume. I had no, no education. I had no friends. I had a few family members. Um, but I knew if I didn't, you know, if I didn't get fucked up anymore, mm -hmm. things would be all right. So you, you get out. How old are you now? So I'm probably in 23, 24. 24. Oh, wait, no, no, okay. no. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. When I get out, yeah, probably around there. Okay. So <laughs> that's how many years ago? Well, I'm 36 now. So we're talking 11, 12 years ago. Yeah. No, that's crazy. So you, your life, I mean, I know. For me, it took a while. Like you said, it doesn't happen immediately. We, we get into recovery. Things yeah. get a little harder before they get easier. You got to work through a lot of the crap that you've done and figure it all out and get those emotions under control. Mm -hmm. And then life starts to change, right? I mean, you start to see these little baby steps that you take and things get gradually better and better and better. And if you don't go back yeah. to it, they continue to get better. How did your life get better, man? Like, I mean, like I know you have yeah. this great life now. Like you, you have this amazing relationship with your wife you talk about her with <clears throat> such passion um these wonderful children this amazing podcast you've ch you changed everything you're passionate about it so you found this passion in recovery and i'm assuming what happened at some point is that you started to learn that you really like to help other people yeah no, I did. I, I had two goals when I was in when I was in jail. I said I wanted to be an addition counselor and I wanted to get a German Shepherd. So I got mm. the German Shepherd and um and then I went back to school, man. My my parents um came back around and they were like, Hey, like if you wanna work, obviously you need to be working because you don't do good when you're not. We don't care mm -hmm. what you do, you know, and I'm like structure. Yeah. And you know, I'm a little bit older, right? So I at this point I'm like, I wanna do everything on my own, but this uh, my mom was like, we put away this money in this account. It can only be used for school. So if you want to go back to school, like, 
we can do that for you. Um, so I went to school to be an addiction counselor. I got, I graduated mm. from that, which was like just a miracle in itself. Um, and I got this job working at a treatment center here in Ontario. And I used to work with teenagers, like 14 to 18. I mean, same destructive behavior. I was, you know, living mm -hmm. in for a while. Um, and I did that for six years, man. And I was a clinical caseworker and I worked with um, a, a lot of incredible people, man. And, and I did that, um, you know, and that really inspired me, man, to like to develop as a person and it held me accountable, you know, as a person. And I don't want to say it was a recovery program because it wasn't by any means, but in a professional sense, um, I was in there, man. I was involved with, uh, you know, meetings, groups, running groups, um, doing treatment plans for people. I was involved with a, maybe, maybe you could say um, advising or suggesting things that people should do. And me personally, I don't feel right doing that if I'm not doing it myself. You know, that's part of uh, the way I live. Mm -hmm. is that I'm not going to make suggestions or, or advise other people to do anything I haven't done or, or, or that I'm not willing to do myself. So, it, you know, throughout that process, I, I grew, I grew. And then I met my wife there and um, yeah, mm -hmm. we, we got, we, we met and yeah, we started seeing each other and things were good. And then uh, my oldest daughter is six. So when I brought my, when we brought my oldest daughter into, it was about two months before I was in this really low spot. Fentanyl had kind of crept into the space. You know, we were losing people on McDonald's washroom toilets that I'd worked with for six months that were just, I mean, these people would just blow you away, honestly. Their personalities are just bigger than life itself. And, um, man, it hit it hit hard, right? How do you work with somebody six months? They, they bust their ass. They do a great job. And then this is the phone call you get, you know, three months, four months later. And I was like, man, you know, like mm -hmm. it hit me hard, dude. And I was like, I don't know, like, if I'm built for this, um, and I would already kind of feeling stressed and burned out. I mean, giving your all to the people that need it every single day is very taxing job. It's a very challenging job. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and teenagers can be very, you know, have a lot of trauma and a lot of stuff going on, um, beyond just the addiction. So I went into this job one day and I felt physically ill, anxious and everything. Mm -hmm. It was a Sunday. I used to work Sunday to Thursday. And, um, I kind of taught my wife a little bit about, about quitting this job. And I, uh, I just decided right then and there I was quitting this job. Mm -hmm. And um, I typed up my letter of resignation, um, put, threw it in my boss's mailbox. And I told the two guys I work with, I said, guys, I can't do another. I can't do this for another second. Mm -hmm. um, because the thing with teenagers too in treatment is it's no fault of theirs necessarily, but a lot of them don't want to get help. No, a lot of they're, them they're forced, to. you know, they're forced and, and yeah. teenagers are tough. Anyway, I have two teenagers now. <laughs> they want what they want, man. And they have delusions of grandeur. They really do. They think this life is something very different than it is. And they don't have the foresight to look ahead. And it's really hard to manage them. I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. So it was exhausting in that sense over the years. So yeah, I quit there. My wife was pregnant with our first daughter. I had no idea what I was going to do. And this sort of like wraps this all into the whole sober motivation thing. Mm -hmm. Um, there was like these talks of like, you know, creating a personal brand. And I had no idea about any of this stuff. I barely had a Facebook page. I bare, I never mm -hmm. did well in school. I never took business, not, you know, none of that mm -hmm. stuff, like none of it literally. Um, and that's when the whole idea is like, I still want to do this. I want to try to help people, but I just can't do it in this residential setting. And that's like when this whole thing started, you know, six, six, five, six, seven years ago, something or some, one of those three about, you know, sharing my story and, and, and you know, 
and, and see where it lands, right? That's what I said. I said, I'll, and I didn't have any money. Like I was doing odd jobs. You know, I kind of became this entrepreneur overnight. I didn't know it, but mm-hmm. I was going to have to provide for my family. My wife was off work, obviously, with the, with the newborn. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of internal struggles and a lot of the foundation I learned in recovery, I leaned on, you know, through that, like my failure or like, is this selfish of me to do this stuff? Because we were struggling, I mean, to pay the mortgage and the, the car payments and that type of yep. stuff. and but she supported me to like keep going, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, that's kind of how everything was born. Right. It wasn't, um, it was tough, man. And this is way before a lot of this fun stuff we see now happening. Now we see a massive community. When I first got on Instagram, there was four of us that shared this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, and on Facebook, there was a handful of three people who shared this stuff. It wasn't really openly talked about because of the stigma out there. Of Huge about stigma. people who struggle with it and also stigma of other fellowships and programs who tell you to do it a certain way and people misinterpreted that i believe that you're allowed to share your own story you just can't share the story of others you know and i think yeah, that, yeah. And that the was anonymity how, thing right i mean that yeah. that creeps in the end it's like yeah but we need to heal we need to understand you know, the stories of the people's personal stories. We need to listen to them. It's about fellowship. I believe in the power of shared experience. And I believe in AA. Look, it's a great thing. The big book is wonderful. There's a lot of great stories. Is it antiquated a little bit? It's a little bit older, yeah. Is it probably the most powerful spiritual book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that has ever been created by Americans? Yes. I, I believe it is the most powerful spiritual book. Uh, but is it a little bit old and, and should we start to be a little bit more flexible? Totally, dude. Like this has been amazing. See, I, this helps keep people sober. Like we're connected in a different way now than we ever were, you know, 10 years ago. Now we're yeah. all online, especially post COVID. I mean, if we didn't have the digital community, how would we have stayed sober post COVID? I mean, that would have been terrible. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that, that's sort of, where everything kind of, you know what I mean? That's where it all kind of started, right? And it just, I, I wake up some days and I'm like, dude, I have to do something else with my life. And I tell my wife, I said, I got to do, I got to do something else with my life, you know? Um, That's the ADD a, creeping in, man. Yeah. And I do ADHD. do other things. Yeah. <laughs> and too. I do do other things too that, you know, bring me joy. And this brings me a ton of joy. Uh, it's it's hard to though, you know I mean? It's tough, but um, I'll tell her that. And then, you know, I'll get a note. Um, from somebody that, you know, podcast changed my life. And I'm like, oh, huh. there we go. Back to the pond yep. <laughs> for, an- for another day, right? Dude, it's impossible. Like I, I, I want, I'm like, I cannot create more videos. Like I'm just, I'm at that end where I'm like, oh, I need a break. Like I don't want to come up with another <laughs> quote, but I have things, these things that pop in my head. And then you get that message from somebody like I'm in a dark place and mm-hmm. you know what you said on, the podcast just saved me. It really changed the way I'm viewing things. And now I have hope again. And you're, you're like, I got to keep working, you know, and yeah. it's, it's hard so, not to. Yeah. It's so strange to me. And we didn't have podcasts. I don't think that when I was getting at it, I'm pretty sure we didn't, but I mean, mm-hmm. we had other stuff, radio shows, but it just really blows me away that something like that can really change the course for somebody's life. You know, because I feel like sometimes we get wrapped up in, we need these complex answers to these solutions. We need this like breakthrough thing and this thing that's just going to hit home. And I believe 
it's not even about the message. It's about your willingness to receive it. Cause there's tons of good messages that are going around in the world. But my life changed when I became willing to hear just a simple message. It wasn't like it was this big, profound, like, you know, parting the ways, like everything. But I was at a spot where I was willing to say, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, like, you're right, dude. I'm getting in my own way here and I need to step to the side. And, And I think that that's, you know, what's so cool is that with the podcast and with the stories and what other people go through, we can just pay it forward that if there's a way that we got through it, it's not saying that because we got through it, you can get through it because we all come from different walks and people have different things they go through. But it's saying, hey, because we've been through it, maybe there's a part you can relate with and it can have a little bit of hope that you can too find a way through it, that getting through it's possible. You know, It might not be the same way I've done it, but that other people – see that you know like matt's been able to to get through this and brad has too and so have hundreds of thousands of other people and you know what like i can do this too because i never had that i never had that you know hope is really important and i think spreading that message of hope and showing people all different kinds of walks all different kinds of people out there that have Mm -hmm. been through recovery and have made it through the other side even in the darkest of times gives people that hope to try their experience is going to be different, but there's a lot of tools out there that we're helping them understand are available. And I don't think a lot of people know that there's all these resources out there. And when they find something like sober motivation, they're like, wow, I didn't even know I could listen to this. And this helps, you know, this helps keep me sober because it's essentially what we're, what we're doing and what you're doing there is you're helping them identify every single day and every time they listen to that show that they, they, they have a problem. I mean, I know that when I see a post come up, I'm like, well, why, why do I follow sober motivation? <laughs> you know, why, why? Oh, well, because I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic. Right. And that's what I align with. And when I fall out of alignment with that, then I know there's, there's some rough stuff going on. And I, I just, I love what you're doing, man. And I'm, I'm so glad that you have such a wonderful life now. And so grateful that, we get to spend time together chatting about this. Sounds like your wife is super supportive and super cool. Yeah. Oh, for sure. 110%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even through all the tough times. I mean, to, to keep this thing alive, I've done a bunch of gigs, side gigs, um, mm-hmm. you know, probably not in the last two years, but before that, just to keep this sort of dream, quote unquote, alive i've had to say yes to a lot of things i what might not otherwise do you know financial wise right to to do things and um and she's been supportive of all of it and been you know held down the fort when i couldn't you know which like as a man too was it was a struggle man to to like let go of the reins a little bit like just let go and just let you know let things pan out that was tough like there's so much to learn um you know beyond what's out there right being an entrepreneur and figuring this out. The fact that I'm still going six years later, um, I just wake up every morning, dude, I haven't used an alarm clock in five years. I wake up every morning, um, fired up, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Just try to, you know, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, a, a big part of the, this is to help me too. You yeah. Know, I, the passion, I, I man. Well. 
you found you found your passion. So you, you said it, and and you can't ever let go of that. And, and I'm sh- like you said, four people in the beginning. Okay, there's four people listening. Then it becomes twenty. Then it becomes a hundred. Then it's oh, it's a couple hundred. Then it's like two thousand. Wow, I never thought I'd be at two thousand. Then you see it go to ten, fifty, a hundred, and you're like, okay, it doesn't really matter that it's growing like that. It's great that it is. But if we can just if we can just save one person out there, if we can just reach that one mm-hmm. person. It's that original goal. And, you know, sober motivation is uh, something that, you know, people should support. And, you know, I know it's hard and it can be hard financially, but um, for people out there listening, you know, go and find the podcast, check it out. It is a great inspiration. Um, You're on Spotify, you're on YouTube. No, are you on YouTube? You're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Where else? Yeah, that, those would be good. That that's a good list. That's a good list, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Apple I mean, and it's, Spotify. Yeah, the, Apple's the big one, right? Yeah, I would say it's the big. Yeah, the biggest. Yeah. You get most of your yeah. views through there. Yeah. And Apple. what other what other products and things do you have out there that people can jump on that you know they may they, we they may not be aware of? Yeah. No, I mean, great. That's great. Um, I don't really have any products, but I do work for a company called Sober Buddy, and I've worked for them for like three years. Um, and I more more or less work in like the marketing stuff, but I also host meetings in the app. So we have a mobile app that walks you through challenges based on where you're at in your recovery journey. It has mm-hmm. a free sober tracker too. Some people like like that. Some people don't. You can track your sober days, do your daily check-ins. And then the most powerful part of the app is that we have a digital community. And I've been a part of a lot of digital communities but this community is literally like a family. So we, we pop on, we have two um, support groups every day. And we've also started these member led um, meetups. We call them like digital virtual meetups. So they'll be on at 7.30 on Friday, you know, when things are tough and they get in there and they link up. And um, sometimes they'll talk, talk about topics amongst themselves or they'll just check in or they'll just um, hang out and talk about football, but they're really connecting virtually with other people that are on the same journey and the feedback from people is just, I mean, it's really blown me away mm-hmm. with, um, wow. with how much people are connecting with it. So um, that's something that's really cool um, that, that I'm a part of. And I mean, you know, other than that, I just, I just had the show, the Instagram, the Facebook, Facebook group, and, you know, a team of people behind me that um, most of them prefer to be in the shadows, but they do help out with, um, with different things. And I appreciate them so much for everything that they do to make this possible because we get, you know, sometimes hundreds of messages a day and emails and everything, you know, so it's, it's 92% of the time me, but a few, some of the time it's, it's one of the the helpers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a little bit of that. Well, Hey man, I really appreciate you and I appreciate your story. That was a great story, by the way. I'm glad that I got that. Cause I know like I, I didn't, I, well, I wanted to know your story. I was like, I gotta, I gotta hear this. And it was, yeah. it's mind blowing to, to all, all that you went through and, and thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And, yeah. um, for all the people out there, go check out, uh, sober motivation. Uh, you and I hooked up on there. I'm so appreciative that you shared that and that I was able to yeah. be on your podcast. Cause literally people there have been, there's been like an outpouring of people on my page. Um, the, the podcast, people have listened to it and they've come to me from sober motivation from the podcast and said, you know, this, this changed things for me. So thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. That's what it's all about. Right. 
I got yeah. tired. I got tired of sharing my story, man. And that I, I'm, I'm grateful I did because that, that was that light bulb moment to where, um, I've always wanted this to be more about more than me. I don't want it to be, if I could have it my way, it would be, it would have nothing to do with me. But I realized yeah. too, that every ship needs a captain. Somebody has got to be steering this thing. And, and I enjoy that, but other parts of me, like, I don't enjoy that, but um, thank you, man. I'm I'm happy that your story was well received. I I really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me. All right, brother. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Well, we went.